Well, my name is Scott Reevely. I am delighted to be here. I was here in the early, early days when we would hold services for about a month to have this many people. And so it's really been uh, good for me to, to come every now and then and to enjoy what God is doing at New Life Wilsonville. This morning, uh, we've already read the text that I want to speak from, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. And I just want to admit that I don't always believe what I'm going to talk to you about today. How's that? I probably shouldn't say that, should I? I probably should say, this one I totally have nailed, and I'm going to speak to you as an expert. But this morning, I'm going to speak to you as someone who's walking alongside, doing my best to be in relationship with God, to love Him, and to feel loved by Him. Because I suspect that if you're like me, that you have uh, spent a fair amount of time throughout your life struggling to believe that God is really for you. That He really does, in fact, love you. That God isn't just somehow up there looking down waiting for you to mess up so He can slam His judgment down on you and teach you a lesson. Some of you know whether you've been... I mean, you, you see, God is, is some cosmic Santa Claus, right? Who knows if you've been naughty or nice. And uh, he, you're not sure... I mean, you know what list you should be on and how He should treat you. And so it's a struggle to really believe that, in fact, God is for you. In fact, even if you do believe God is for you, there probably are one or two or three things that are way back in the recesses that every now and then pop to the forefront and you say, God loves me except for that. God would love me if I hadn't have done that. God would be for me if I was a little more consistently for Him. And you know that you have dropped the ball. And that somehow, because you, because you haven't done what you know you should do, because you have um, somehow failed, that you don't deserve the love of God. And really, the love of God is like you know, everything else in the world. You don't get a promotion unless you deserve it. You don't get an A in class unless you deserve it. Everything else you have to deserve. And it just isn't normal to think of the love of God differently from all the other things in our lives. At least that's how it is for me. My default setting is not to just... Smile and rejoice that I'm so loved by God. My default setting is to try and measure up, to try and keep the law, to try and somehow please God so He'll be pleased with me. And I end up insecure, looking over my shoulder, wondering 
if in fact God is for me. That's how it is for me until I come to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. And either I have to cross those out of my Bible or I have to believe it and change my default setting. And so I want you to take your Bibles and turn to what we've already read in Romans chapter 8. Because there are three questions here that are, are really going to form the, the bones of what I want to talk about so that you see for yourself that God is in fact serious about being for you. Not for you if you deserve it. Not for you if you're a good girl. Not for you if you've got everything dialed in. But God is for you. Period. So we ask three questions here. Three questions I think it would be good for us to consider. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Now, of course... These things aren't up on the screen, right? What are the things that he's wondering what we should speak about? What should we say about what things? Well, he doesn't say exactly what things. So we have to figure it out. And so what, what I would do in order to figure it out is I, I, would, I would look back to see what things is he asking about? What are we going to say about these things? And I'd probably go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. What are you going to say about that? Or we might have in mind Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through uh, the end of chapter 1, where he says, Well, God, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, and he has turned people over to their sin and to the futility of their mind, and they exchanged the, the, the glory of the God for, for the um, corruptible idols and things of this world. God has every right to be against us. What are you going to say about that? What are we going to say about these things? In chapter 2, he says that our consciences, our consciences condemn us. That in fact, we, we try and keep the law and we can't. That we try and conform on the outside, but the inside remains unchanged. What are you going to say about that? Or chapter 3 where he points out that there is none righteous. No one has done good. No one has sought after God. 
The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal. Oops, that's the wrong one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the one I'm after. 323. What are you going to say about that? You're going to say, oh, that's not the case. Though, no, no, that doesn't apply to me. No, it applies to everybody. All of these apply to everybody. Which means, God has every right to be against you. What are you going to say about that? What are you going to say to these things? Or you move on to chapter 3 where he says that God has placed Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins so that God's wrath is satisfied by Jesus. So, so God being against us, He no longer needs to be against us because of Jesus. And He has become for us our righteousness and He has justified, has made us right in God's sight if we receive Him by faith. What do you say about that? Or chapter 5 where He's talking about our suffering. There we go. You knew it was going to come, right? Proof that God's against us. And he says, but wait. These sufferings, I know these sufferings, uh, they work for us. Um, proven character and proven character brings about hope. And the hope, uh, we, we delight in the hope because the Holy Spirit pours out God's love in our hearts. So even in the midst of our suffering, God showers His love on us through the Holy Spirit. And He changes us so that our character is proven. What are you going to say about that? That's not exactly God being against you, is it? Or then He admits it. He admits that God's against us. He says when we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He says that we, while we were His enemies, Christ died for us. What are you going to say about that? Or even then, that you were born with Adam sort of as your leader and you lived in this way that displeased God just like Adam did. But because Jesus has come, He has transferred you into the kingdom of His dear Son and now you are a new person and a new creation. You're nice. So much so that at the beginning of chapter 6, it says, don't you know that those of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So that just as you were buried with Him in baptism, you might be raised to new life. Don't you know that you have a new life? What do you say to these things? What do you say about that? Or even as you go on in chapter 6 where it talks about um, our us being slaves to sin. But Jesus coming and liberating the slaves, breaking the power of sin so that now we're no longer slaves to sin, but we can live to Christ. What are you going to say about that? What are you going to say about these things? Well, you're going to say maybe, you're going to say what it says in chapter 7, right? Uh, so I try to do what I know I should do, and I can't. And I try not to do the things that I shouldn't do. And I do them anyway. 
You knew you knew what was going to happen, didn't you? You knew you were going to somehow mess up so that God would get you. And what did he say? Who's going to deliver me from the body? Thank through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, verse 25. What are you going to say about that? See, all the while, we're thinking about the condemnation of God. We're thinking about God looking down on us, ready to come after us, thinking that we have to somehow deliver ourselves or qualify to be loved by Him. And He says, who's going to do this? Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The very next thing then. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that there is therefore now no chance that God is against you. What are you going to say about that? Think about that. What are you going to say about that? What are you going to say about these things? Or the fact that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free from the law of sin and death. What are you going to say about that? Or the fact that He's given you the Holy Spirit. That you, in fact, are a child of God. What are you going to say about that? See, and I'm asking you, what are you going to say about that? Because I know what you're going to say about that. You're going to say what I say. Well, yeah, I'm a child of God and, you know, parents get mad at their kids, right? And parents want to toe the line. When will we ever get it? See, the Holy Spirit enables us to cry out, even in those moments, Abba, Father. In the most intimate way possible to appeal to God. He's not up there as uh, a judge to punish us. He's there as an intimate, loving Father to hear us and to help us. Then He takes it up again. He takes up again the very thing that you are certain tells you that God isn't for you. Verse 18 of chapter 8, when he says, We know, we consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory which shall be revealed in us. This, the suffering of, in our suffering, right? It's the hard things, it's the job losses, it's the MRI that comes back with news that you don't want. It's the, Frustration that someone is causing you in your ministry. It's a, it's a, it's a boundary dispute that you have with your neighbor. It's the rebelliousness of your child. It's the lack of intimacy in your marriage. All of those things that cause you to suffer, you're very quick, if you're like me, to say, that is proof that God's not for me. And yet, what does he say? The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory which shall be revealed in us. That suffering works for us glory. We'll see that in in a second. So much so that 
all of creation is suffering. All of the, the children of God are groaning under the weight that this world is not like it should be. We want every circumstance to reinforce the fact that yes, God is crazy about us. But, but every circumstance doesn't. And finally, he says, you know what? The Holy Spirit comes alongside you. And He groans with you. Taking your prayers to the Father to make sure you're heard. And then there's verse 28. For we know that all these things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now that's... That was, that's just too, too direct. That's too straight. That's too good. We, we can't believe that one. So we'll crumple that one up and we'll throw that away because that one is too much like God is really for us. He really is serious about bringing good from all of these things, especially the sufferings of the present time. How can you be sure of that? Because those whom He foreknew, He did also predestine to be conformed to the image of His Son. The the perfection of excellence, the person of Jesus, is the aim that God has for your life. And He is conforming you to the image of His Son because He loves you and is crazy about you as, and He is crazy about His Son and He wants you to be like Him so that He might be the firstborn among all the brothers. This is so certain that whom He foreknew he did also, for whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those who he justified, those he glorified. Your future glorification is so certain. It's spoken of as though it has already happened. God really does mean for you to be secure in His love, in His design that your life will ultimately end up in glory. Can you See, that's the thing. What are you going to say about that? If you are going to hold on to the fact that God is not for you, you have to pretty much disbelieve everything in the book of Romans so far. Are you committed to do that? See, that's what I get confronted with. What am I going to say about this? There is nothing to say. This is so... Spectacular. So generous. So beautiful. So over the top with the love of God. That I'm speechless. That's His intent. Say about He expects. You'll be speechless when you rehearse them. What are you going to say about this? Now, I'm pretty much going to say, God must love me. God must be for me if all of this is true. In fact, that's what he comes to next. His next question, right? What are we going to say about these things? Question one. 
Question two. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great question. Sarah, I mean, my first thought is that I have lots of people against me. Right? I have lots of things against me. I have lots of circumstances against me. I have lots of stuff that I don't like that seems to be coming against me. And the point of the question is not to deny that. The point of the question is, if God is for you, Does it really matter what's against you? That's the force of the question, isn't it? If God is for you, it doesn't matter what's against you. I mean, it's very much like, it's very much like you had a, um, you're a kid on a playground, right? And you have, um, you know, you have some boys who are, I mean, they're little, little people, right? And they're, they're, they're wanting to pick a fight with you. I mean, and you remember, my dad can beat up your dad, right? If my dad is for me, and he's there with me, it doesn't matter which one of those little guys is against me. They can't do anything. They're powerless to do me harm when, in fact, God is for me. So you take whatever circumstances it is that you think is against you. Well, I'm, my, um, I don't have enough money. That's against me. You know what? If God's for you, that can't be against you. Well, I don't feel very good. I don't have much energy. Well, you know what? If God is for you, that can't be against you. If God is for you, what of these things can possibly come against you with any success? Already demonstrated that He is for you. God is for you. What are you worried about being against you? In other words, all of these other things are no proof at all that God is not for you. The Gospel has rehearsed already is proof that God is for you and therefore all of these things are puny. All of these things are weak when it comes to God being for you. Well, then he asks the third question that is essentially a more specific rehearsal of the second question. What are you going to say about all these things in the Gospel as proof that God's for you? Who can be against you? Then, the third thing is if God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for all of us, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? That's the third question. How will He not also, together with Him, graciously give us all things? And if, if the first question is inviting us to rehearse the good news, that God is in fact for you. And the second one is to say, if God who is supreme and unstoppable in His purposes, and all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, all-good, all-merciful, if He is for you, 
What's going to be sufficient to be against you? This third question is meant to say, if God is really for you and He's already given you His Son, at what point along the way is He going to become stingy with you? If God has already given you His Son, at what point will He stop being good to you? Very. When will He cross His arms and say, I'm done. Forget it. Those other things are too much good for me to give. He's not going to. I like to think about this as um, someone who proposes to uh, his fiancée. He gets down on one knee and he, he opens the box and he asks her to marry him and he gives her the ring. She puts it on. Everyone cries. And then she says, oh, could I have that box too? And he says, no way. I gave you the ring. What do you want? That's not going to happen, is it? If he has already given you the ring, throwing the box in is like a no-brainer. It's not a big deal. So it is with, with God who has given you His Son. Now, it isn't just that He gave you His Son. The beautiful thing is that He... And you, you probably heard me say it differently than it is up here. He who did not spare His own Son literally delivered Him up for us all. That's, that's the literal verb there instead of gave. Gave is sort of nondescript. Delivered Him up for us all. Which is the exact word that is used of Judas. Delivering It is the exact word used of Pilate delivering Jesus up to be crucified. It is the exact word that Jesus Himself, um, that, that, that Paul used of Jesus Himself delivering Himself up for us all. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Or Ephesians 5.25 when it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and delivered Himself up for her. In other words, this is, a, this is a pretty sober gift that God Himself delivered His Son for you. That's what it says. Delivered Him up for us all. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I, I just, I just talk to myself all the time about this because I struggle to read. And I think, well, yes, you know, Jesus sort of got crosswise with the leaders. And, you know, he had, he, he, he could have healed on another day. He always healed on the Sabbath. They hated him for that, didn't they? And then he could have, he could have been nicer to them. Right? I mean, they, he comes like the last week of his life there and, and, um, they ask Jesus, um, 
about the resurrection and he picks a fight with them. And they ask about... Um, he tells parables that put the, the Pharisees like in the role of the bad guy and they, they, they perceive that he talked about them. And so they resolve to kill. I mean, Jesus could have been nicer to them, right? And not been killed. This was a horrible accident that Jesus was killed. But the good news is, you know, God pulled through and He raised Him from the dead. You see, if, if I just have some kind of accidental you know, view of what happened on the cross. I don't get that um, God loves me like I do if I understand this. It was, see, underneath, underneath Judas's delivering up Jesus was God's determined purpose to be for you. Underneath Pilate's cowardice in delivering up Jesus to be crucified by the religious leaders was God's determined purpose to be for you. God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for you. That He did it for you. Let that sink in. That all of the awfulness of Pilate and all the awfulness of Judas and the scourging and the um, mocking and the crown of thorns and the, and the lashes and the spear in the side and the nails in the hands, all of that, God did that because He was for you. And He delivered up His Son so that you wouldn't have to ask anymore if God was for you. Didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And so here's the question. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now again, that's, that's a little bit frustrating to me because where do, where do you go with this? I, I'll tell you where I go with it. I go straight to God not loving me. <laughs> I don't know how I do it, but I just sort of magically do that because I look at all things. You know what? There's a Tesla parked across the street from me that I don't have, Right? Therefore, I don't have all things. Therefore, God must not love me, right? I don't have that big a house. I I have aches and pains. I don't have the greatest health. God must not love me. And what what I do is I translate that to mean all things. When that's really not helpful because it's not about things. God loving you has never been about things and it's never going to be about things. He says that God didn't spare His own Son but delivered Him up for all of us. How will He not also, along with Him, graciously give you everything? That would be a better translation. Everything. Everything you need to become conformed to the image of His Son to be one day 
predestined, called, justified, and glorified. God's going to give you everything to get you from where you are today or where you were yesterday all the way to where you're going to be one day. He's not going to to fail. There's going to be no lack. There's going to be no breakdown in God's process. He is not suddenly going to decide that His generosity has run out. This is is so overwhelming when you think about it. When you just sit there and let this sink in. The commitment that God has already made to you. When you let that sink in, it's it's a completely unreasonable exercise to try and convince yourself that God doesn't love you or that God is up there waiting for you to fail so He can get you. It is completely nonsensical to read these verses and somehow get to the place where you're uncertain of God's intent toward you. Think about that. See, that for me is that's right back where I started. See, I started by confessing that I do struggle to believe that God loves me. And in order to, in order to stay in that struggle, what I have to do is I have to forget this. I have to ignore it. I have to pretend that God doesn't really mean it. Because He is over the top in being for us so that nothing can stand against us, in giving us His Son to satisfy His wrath, to reconcile us to God so that there's no more condemnation. So that all things work together for good. So that even in my suffering, the Holy Spirit is there alongside to help in my weakness. All of that is just you know, thing after thing, item after item, God is so for me, I can't ignore it anymore. And if you are here this morning, and maybe you're, you're here sort of trying to figure out whether God would forgive you for what you've done in the past. Maybe something nobody knows about. Whether God would receive you back into a relationship with Him. And you're wondering whether or not God would do that. Is He really going to be on my side? Or is that what I've done already enough that He's going to be against me? See, I just want to submit to you the verses that we've looked at all morning. What are you going to say about the Gospel that isn't God is for me. And when you say God is for me, what are you going to say after that? What can be against me? There's nothing that is going to make God not be for me. Nothing going to be so powerful that God isn't going to overcome it. Then what are you going to say? God didn't give you His Son. If He didn't withhold His Son, I mean, how will He not take care of you and all these other things? That really is the message of Romans 8, 31-32. Is that you can rest. 
in the fact that God is for you. You can be confident that God is not somehow uh, whipping back and forth between liking you and not liking you, between being for you and being against you. You can be certain God is not even neutral here. And so you can rest and be confident and go from here. And whatever things happen to you next week, you can face them with the certainty that God is for you. And whatever that is that you face can't possibly be against you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just really need Your help to believe this. It seems too good to be true. It seems too good that the God of the universe who spoke it into being, who raises up kings and deposes princes, the one who throughout human history has been working His will, that even in and especially in the death of His Son, accomplished all of the good that He intended from before the foundation of the world. But all of that is, seems too good to be true that You would be for us. So God, would Your Holy Spirit now, even as we continue our worship, even as we continue meditating on uh, Your generosity to us, would You convince us that You are in fact for us? And I ask this in the name of Your Son. Amen.